Welcome to the Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Tackling some of the biggest issues in men's mental health. Hello, welcome back. Episode 8 of Series 2. We're joined by, well, you know, personally for me, this is a really big one. Um, this guy was someone who I, I think I stalked you quite a lot, didn't I? Can you remember? I don't <laughs> It's Chris Newton, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's Chris Newton. I don't know how I'm going to put it into words, really. Um, this guy basically won everything there was to win in the UK. Been to the Olympics. He's done everything. He's now, is it performance coach of the women? Uh, what's the title? What's your correct title, Christopher? My correct title? I'm unsure of it myself. No, I'm, I'm endurance coach with the Academy Women yep. and the Pro Road, so the Elite Road women as right. well. But that's more of a manage, managerial side of things, really. And... Yeah, me and Chris are both from, well, we're both from Teesside. And the photographer here, Christopher Lambert, is also from Teesside. So we've got three, we've got three Teesiders, two Christophers and one Tom. So we should all feel at home. The Yorkshire Grit Podcast. And when I first got into cycling, yeah, this is, this, is, this is really good. This is the love. This is what we're talking about here. This is the, the fairy tales, the, the, the shiny bikes, the stuff that makes you want to be a cyclist. Your name was used a few times because I we both know Simon Baxter. Yeah. Uh, we both know Chris Mark. We both know Tony McKenna. And I would rock up to the Bluebells and Acklam at 9.45 and they would tell me these 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 fairy tale stories of Chris Newton and how you'd go around Pickering and leave them, you know, behind and um and I was like, Who is this fucking guy, Chris Newton? And then you'd go on Eurosport and there might be some commentary of you winning something in Girvan or some stage of the Rass or something like that. And um I remember when I did those Lacole Tour of Britain stages and I'd see you and I'd have to go, oh, that's good. I'd go up and see you. Like, Who the fuck is this kid? We just leave me. <laughs> so I do apologise for that. I do apologise for that. But, um, mate, it's great to have you here. How are you doing? Honestly, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. I don't think anyone's brilliant at the moment, are they? I think everyone's struggling. Fuck? You know, everyone's having a, a tough time. And, uh, yeah, and, and why shouldn't we, you know? admit it you know we're having a tough time and uh i was chatting to uh he's actually our pd sparky and he was he just he came out and said oh, how are you doing I said, honestly I'm like a pendulum sometimes you're mm, good sometimes yeah. you're bad and it doesn't take much to knock you off kilter really mm-hmm. where normally you, you know you can you can roll with a few punches but i think everyone's probably in the same boat at, at this moment in time let's let's hope that you know with this reduced lockdown and people can get a bit of normality and move forward and light the end of the tunnel really like I, I alluded to you when we just got a coffee then from the um you know i'm not going to say too much here but i've fucked up spectacularly recently even by my standards i've really kind of gone tom how much can you fuck up what's really good and i've really gone to town on it and it's without shadow being the worst week of my life without shadow so even when i'm talking now it may sound i'm, I'm all right i'm really far from all right but that's my responsibility and that's something that i've got to take with it it is great. Thank you very much for making the drive over here. I do want to talk to you about growing up in Teesside and training with Curran and uh, maybe Barris was not quite your time. During his comeback, it was. Was it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tell, us about, tell us about the glory days. Come on, tell us about that feeling that makes you feel like it's Christmas Day on the morning, that type of cyclist feeling. Try and get yourself back into that. It's been back in Teesside. It's actually riding my bike over there. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh... Yeah, like, like I said before we came on air, the last time I went over was May, last time we came out of lockdown. The one thing I wanted to do was, one, meet Shortly, Curran. What do you call him? Shortly. So you call him, right? Okay. <laughs> it kind of, I, I don't know where it came from. There's obviously, there was a Shortly, I think, in It Ain't Our Fault Mum, which obviously can't be aired anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he'd always say, see you shortly, as in see you tomorrow. And yeah. uh, 
obviously he's he's challenging he's challenging the height in the, in the height department. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, so yeah, see him and you know get all the gossip and the banter and and go and ride my bike over the roads we used to train on and uh, yep. yeah. So and that takes me back and that's the bit that I, that I like and that's the you know that the bits that I'll never ever forget and I'll always take when I move forward with whatever I do is. That's what got me into it, all that kind of stuff. I said to Chris as we were driving over here, you know, he said, have you ridden your bike today? And no, because I, I still don't want to. I'm still finding that hard to do. Do you look back at that now? Can you look back at that now and go, do you know what? Yeah, I'm really, you know, great. Or do you look back at that with bitterness? Are you still a bit like, mm, you know, kind of, or are you okay now with that? Oh, no, I'm fine. I walked away. I... I wouldn't say I walked away from riding a bike or cycling. I walked away from that that quite quite easily. I stepped into the role of coaching when I retired, and I'd lined up all through 2010 and even before then, the end of 2009. I knew I was coming to retirement. Olympic program had changed, so I'd, I'd kind of lined up, and that was my last season racing. And I won the Premier calendar, and I won a load of races and and whatnot. And I, I could have continued, but I'd made a decision. It was quite an, it was quite easy step because I planned for it really. But I still rode my bike for enjoyment, but I took up running and that, that fed that kind of, that need to hurt yourself in, in, yep. a, in a sadistic Cathartic. training kind of way. Yep. So, um, yes. And then I kind of drifted back into riding a bike on training camps and whatnot with the, with the lads that I was coaching at the time. So now I've never, I've never felt bitter about it. I just enjoy it. You, what, you came to a point where you thought enough's enough. This has kind of got to, you know. For retirement? Actually, let's go back a step here because I've kind of jumped a huge part of your life here. What you you said about the great memories of Teesside, and I really want to kind of underpin this. I really want to def- I want to I look into this. What did that look like? What was an average, I don't know, 2005, you know, or when you won Girvin or whether you won uh, whatever race because you won a hell of a lot. What what was a typical week for you? I was, it was always a mixture, really. Because- what was your favourite route? <laughs> well, what was your favourite coffee stop? I'd, I'd actually moved to uh, to Manchester by that point. So if we go back to when I was still living it over in Teesside, it's hard to pick a favourite route over there because I think it's such a great place to ride a bike. Okay. And I've got riders now that I coach that, that live on around the, the, the auction moors and, and you know, you, you almost like jealousy pangs because it takes you back to when you trained over there. So, you know, from getting out from Middlesbrough, you could you go on the flats, go over Richmond, hit the, you know the, the the top of the Pennines, or you could go over the Yorkshire Moors. So you know you had a wealth of different terrain to train on. So you know from steep climbs, long climbs, you had Clairville track that like I grew up with. So there's loads of different things that you could do. So yeah, and uh, probably the Moors is the, is the biggest one. Like you say, Pickering, getting over Hemsley, going over Kirby Moorside, over Hutton La Hole, Rosedale Chimney, Westerdale, yeah. you know, Castleton, all those kind of things. Yeah. There were there were the bits that you know, the escapism. It yeah. was like uh, I'm not going to say it's like an Enid Blyton kind of thing. It was, yeah. but you for me at that age, you know, technology, especially when I was starting out, technology didn't exist, did it? In, in terms of phones and everything else, you would you would you look on a map and yeah. you'd come back and you go look where I've been today, mum. And you plot on a map and you're like 12 years old yeah. and you're just out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you know, anything could have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My daughter's 13, I wouldn't let her out my side. So it was it was different. Uh, so it's that sense of, sense of adventure. Uh, and, and that's the thing that really, I think, grabs people, did then and probably does now, actually. It's really great to see you 
eyes light up then and smile um, when you said that. I was determined to get a smile out of you today, Chris. I was determined to make you laugh. But um, for me personally, I was never ever in your league. But Paul Curran did pay me a compliment once. He did say he did say some. I don't know him like you. Like you knew him, and I kind of wish I did because he was probably the best rider to come out of Teesside. If you look at his results, um, he was really paying a really nice compliment. Personally, for me, if there was a training ride that I have to go to, it would be Yarm, Crayform, Stokesley, Chopyat, Valley Road, Laskill, up that horrible, you know, with the, the dip at Laskill over the back, Osmotherley. Oh, it's Hornby. Hornby. Yeah, yeah. Up to Hornby, square across corner, down to Osmotherley, back home. I, I just personally believe that I don't think that ride can be beaten. I dare someone who's listening to try and beat that ride. Well, that's where I was in May last year. That's where I went in May. <laughs> if someone ever said to me, where we, if you had to pick one ride, because you can go out to Richmond and, and Mucker and Buttertubs and Grinton and you can go to East Harsley and you can go to Milton St. John. You, you can go wherever you want, but I would, I would dare someone to try and beat that ride. I just don't think you can. Mm. But tell us about your, how you train, because I've heard different stories and this is something I'm quite interested in. And I'm not going to offend you here. But I've, I've heard you were quite ruthless. Would think, you say that was something that you were aware of at the time or is it? Yeah, I suppose so. I, I suppose I'm ruthless with myself and I was probably quite determined. But again, I picked out from 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 Curran, from Paul. And there was other guys around at the time like Mike Marlin and uh, Dave Hoodard. And these guys were, were there and would train. And, you know, at the, at the time, I was when I first kind of got into it and, and started getting results you know you, you get away with a little bit of talent and a, a little bit of dodging this and that and uh, you, you do enough to to get through really and it took me a while I started in that race in 87 I'd ridden a bike for about three years before then so from like 10 years old coming from school grab my bike just ride out to grade eight and then come back uh, and that was like 10 years old so I started racing at 13 took a few years to, to get any result to mention of, of note yep. and then you start getting a bit better and obviously the local chain gang and for me that the, the chain gang was can you get round can you hang on because you that's all you were doing you'd probably do that and another rider a week two of those and another ride and a race you know you weren't training full time you know I was 14 years old 15 years old but as I got stronger and better then I'd start meeting the lads you know and going out training with them and, you know, it was the typical, there was a point where you'd get to, you'd ride to on a weekend. So it was like 30, 35 miles away, 40 miles. Doesn't seem that far anymore. But, you know, to get there, smash it up to the calf, have a coffee and something to eat and then ride home in, in, you know, in the winter. Inevitably get dropped and they just leave me and then I get back. And then, you know, I think for me, Paul had this thing that he, I think he, I'd like to think he saw something go, you know, this this lad's got a bit of, determination about him and he, he did take me under his wing a little bit really and you know that really gets me really does get me to this day what uh, as in emotionally gets, yeah yeah it makes you think a bit like yeah because um he was he was the best rider around by far i i, I never rode with him best rider around you know because he was ruthless but not in a not in a nasty way he just knew what he had to do and so he would never offer advice as such but if you asked it he'd he, point in the right direction and give you advice and so I kind of learned I learned so much from him and so I kind of took on his training routine really which was go on so Spill the beans, it was Chris. almost like you know you know the circuit so there's this little circuit it's about eight and a half nine miles around near Stokesley 
SEMA circuit there. The SEMA circuit, yeah. There's plenty of races that used to go on around there. I uh, don't know whether they still do. The Mike, I think the Mike Binks. Mike Binks went around there. Phil Russell. Know. Yeah, yeah. All those kind of races. Um, Have you ever won the Mike Binks? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a few times. I bet you, I bet you have. <laughs> so I think, like, Monday was probably an easy ride, but it was always, like, a few hours. Tuesday was through and off, which f- at first it started at Stokesley, straight up the Tontine, onto the A19, along the A- A19 to Thursk, from Thursk to the bottom of Sutton Bank. Oh, God. Uh, and then you took it easy up Sutton Bank, and then you, <laughs> and then you, <laughs> which is a one in three. Sick <laughs> And then, and then you race down, you know, through and off down into Hemsley. You'd have a calf stop there, and then you'd race back through the valley, over the back of yep. Newgate, through the valley, over back of Claybank, and then finish and, and ride home. Uh, Wednesday was your long ride. Thursday, uh, where did we go Thursday? Probably hilly round or some or something. Friday was round the circuit, so you, you, you rode out. You, if there was a few of us, we'd like go through and off. Gee, uh, this is yeah. And then Saturday, Sunday, we were long days again. In the winter before Christmas, it was always we'd do mountain biking when that came kind of into fashion a little bit, like twice a week. And that kind of was that was it really. And I used to do that, and I, and I followed that really. Um, you can't go wrong with that. That was your winter prep from the first of January. That was like kind of the go-to thing, right up to racing. Um, you, you'd be flying within like six weeks, wouldn't you? If you did that every week. Yeah, but you had to obviously you had to have the endurance and, and the, the background to do it. So we did that kind of stuff, and you know, there's obviously days off, and even now, you know, that's like the the rosy coloured glasses coming out. But that was predominantly what we did. Yeah, and then you get into racing, uh, and then you you know you'd race on a weekend, have an easy day, and those kind of thrown off would finish. But you, you, your chain gangs would start, you, your track leagues. Yeah. So you'd have a long ride on a Wednesday. You do track league in the night time. You yeah. do a long ride on a Thursday. Do um, chain gong in a night then you start doing specific TT work and all that Yeah. and Paul was doing all this and I just kind of like kind of folded him I suppose because I didn't have a coach No. Nope. even when I was like training for my first come off games in 94 first Olympics in 96 didn't have a coach as such the games for 90 uh, for 96 we used to go to we go to Manchester for a couple of days and that would be it you'd do some some TP drills mm. and then you'd go home and just do your own thing go back again you just you just had to make sure you were you were ready to to do the, the track training for two days a week, and that's how we went to Atlanta Games. And it was after that I went. I and this is with stop tour, so we can we can always dive back to to various points. Of course we can. <laughs> in, of course in this, we can. In this career, this is um, this is about you, Chris. This is this this is about you and your journey. Yeah. So we can dip in. We can just. And and so I I, I kind of did that, and you know I was. You know, I was winning races and, uh, you know... I, did, did winning come easy to you? No, it, di- it didn't. Like I say, when I was, when I was young, it, it, took me, it took me a fair while to get, to get my first win. Would you say that you were just so good that you won? Or would you say that you were quite a clever rider as well? I am a clever rider, I think. <laughs> I think I am a clever rider, I think, yeah. Because um, you could climb, you could sprint, you could time trial. You know, if you looked at yourself on paper... You know, there's nothing you can't do, really. Yeah, yeah. I liked working out tactics, though. And again, and it, it, it's this is going to turn into the Paul Curran show, actually. But th- we were doing this race around Edmund Byers, and there was me, Sam uh, Walton. No, it was just it was just like two of the two of the res when it was just two of the res. One day it was in March, and that was the that was like one of the first races. Or it was Blanchland, something like that. And it was me and Norman Dunn in the break. We ran for Midridge. Shortly <laughs> was in the break, and a couple of others. Yeah. Oh, it might have been Cook, 
Dave Cook instead of Norman Dunn. But, you know, we were going through and off, and obviously Shorty knew if we got to the finish, I'd probably get the sprint. So he had to, he was going to go for the break. So he waited till my team, so I, like say it was Cookie, see, he waited till Cookie was coming over the wheel on me and someone else before he went and yeah. pinned me in. Yeah, yeah. He, he worked it out to pin me in, to make my own teammate pin me in so he'd attack so I couldn't respond. And I thought, you clever bugger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even when I tried chasing him, I was thinking that, you clever bugger. Like, yeah, yeah, he's beating you in the head. Yeah, straight away. Pete Williams um, told me that. He said, always attack if someone takes a bottle. Yeah, you and know. you just we just wouldn't think of that. <laughs> you just you, you just don't think of those things, do you? Well, if they've got a mouthful of like uh, energy bar, <laughs> you're not going to do anything. You can't breathe, can you? So and if it's a sprint, you want to and think about the wind. I was like, oh right, yeah, fuck yeah. Me. I mean, yeah, all those, but it was just the the working that out, and and that that was kind of like not a light bulb moment, but it was kind of yeah. There's more to it than just like smash yourself in the front and going, I'm the strongest. You know, beat me if you can, kind of thing. But I wasn't always the strongest, and uh, I think I've got a fair amount of talent, or did. You know, that's, <laughs> that's long disappeared. I think that's an understatement. But, but, yeah. but I think it was the work, it was the tenacity and, and the work ethic, that the, the combination of, I suppose. And that's something I see as, you, as, as I'm coaching now um, and trying to get that message across and trying to assess that with, with, with riders coming up. At the time, yeah, it didn't come easy. As such, I, th I, think, my, I think my parents would <laughs> would, would echo that as well because many a race were like, "Well, I don't think we should go back to this this cycling lark because I don't think you you know you're gonna you know you're good enough really." I think for me, cycling, I think you see people who are just really good, like naturally talented, who just look mint, pedal good, who are always like lean, and you're just like, "Yeah, you've got it." Um, but I think cycling, the person who wins at cycling, I think, is just the person who just doesn't give up. I know that's a really cliche thing to say, and I know it's really obvious, but there are so many situations in that when I raced in my short career where I wanted to give up in a race, and I thought, now, nah, fuck this, I'm not giving up here. And then you'll get fourth, or you'll, you know, by the jaws of defeat, if you just keep going and you just keep believing. And the same with training. You can self-doubt yourself so much. Like, you know, there's tears in Mark Cavendish's eyes recently because he's won twice, and, you know, I nearly cried as well. He's been to hell and back. That kid has been to hell and back. But he's the best cyclist in the world. Mm. Look at his results. Why are you doubting yourself? I don't care who you are. You will doubt yourself in cycling. He's won first stage of the Tour de France. He's still going to doubt himself, but he hasn't given up. If there's a pot or there's a jar of whatever it takes, you know, I don't care about Mark Cavendish's achievements. I think what he's done in the past two and a half, three years is his best achievement because he hasn't given up. Mm. Sorry to get a bit get a bit deep there. No, I think. What, but he, he could have easily gone. Fuck it, I've got pneumonia uh, or Epstein Bar. Yeah, because I've had that, and it can play in your head. Oh, can I breathe properly? Is my lung capacity the same? Oh God, I feel ill. Oh God, I'm I'm coughing again. But he's gone. Nah, do you know what? I'm gonna, I'm I'm not going to give up here. And that's the true winner, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, uh, I suppose that's it's the same sense in racing. You can give up. One, because you feel tired or you think you're undertrained or you're not prepped enough. You can also give up because it's not going your way also, you know, whether it be catastrophically not going your way or it's just, you know, there's a break up the road, you're not in the break, how do you get it back? All these kind of things. And you, you just give up. You can give up in your head or you just actually climb off. There's, there's a load of variations or scenarios you can play out in cycling. It's not just a, 
you know, for a football term, you know, it's not just two halves and that's it, job done, you know, mm. not win-lose. It's there's, there's loads of different things, you know, and you can get, you can carve out a good result by not even crossing the line first, but you can still do it. But it takes a lot of mental capacity to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think that as well with the, the training element, <laughs> there's probably a lot of self-talk, isn't it? You know, as you're training, you know, if you're spending five, six hours at a time, probably by yourself training, <laughs> There's a lot of self-reflection, time to self-reflect because it's not full gas all the time, is it, for six hours? No, it's not. So there's a lot of time where you're mentally just talking to yourself, you know. Well, look at that flower at the side of the road. Look yeah. at that car driver, fucking car driver. And then you're like, oh, you can, you what can... do I need to do? I've got this race. And you, well, it's oh, therapy I'm, in I'm, a I'm, way. How am I feeling? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's therapy. That's, a, that's one of the big things for people retiring, I think. That time alone of just being by yourself. I bet a lot of riders struggle with that. It's, it's hard, that. That is hard. If we're going to talk about, you know, a standout result or a breakthrough moment for Chris Newton, as soon as I said that, what came to your mind first? Without even have to, without thinking about what, what, you know, your gut instinct, boom, which one? That really sticks in your mind and you go, do you know what? I haven't got one. (laughs) Now, I think um, probably points race in Copenhagen, 2002. Yeah. I think that was like a, probably my defining moment as a, as a bunch race specialist, really. That's when it kind of clicked into place. I had good legs and I thought, yeah, I can work this, I can work this bike race out. And just not just that bike race, the bike race is on the track after that. And although I think I only, well, I only meddled once after that at, at Worlds. I was fourth about six times or something. Yeah. Something stupid like by missing out by a point. I could get the results, you know, and that was it really. And you know, yeah, I didn't get a medal and for, for quite a few years in the points race, but I was getting fourth all the time. It, it, it never lost its uh, its appeal or the desire to try and win it and win it again. Um, you know, and I tried that many times. And it was that that kind of, I suppose, got me the, the bronze in um, in Beijing in 2008. So it was just... I was hoping you'd bring that. I was hoping you would. <laughs> I haven't got any of them. <laughs> I always I ask know. for a memento of someone. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so I think on the track that was it because I was I was quite a nervy bike rider on the track. Team pursuit was you're going around on a black line and it's you, you're in line. And you know the rider in front's catastrophe aside, you, you're going to be moving forward, so it's it's pretty safe. But in the bunch race, I was pretty nervous really as a as a rider. I think in, in that and and that it kind of clicked into place then and and then just leading into then really. So that was pretty special really. I mean on the on the road, like you say. I, you know, and I do take. I think I do take a bit of flack because, I, I, you know, I read reports and stuff, and I, I see things. That you go, oh, you know, Chris Newton never made it here, never made it there, and he was like the big fish in a little pond in, in the UK. But, but it was different then, though, wasn't it? it? There wasn't the choice. There wasn't the chances. Yeah, I suppose. And you know, I was, I was trying to carve a track career and a road career at the same time. And uh, hardly anyone made it back then. But now there's fucking hell. Who's this Simon Car kid? Yeah, yeah, the, 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 there is, and 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 good, you know, it's good, it's good that that seems that, like there's loads of people doing it now. Yeah, because and are you telling me they were any it, better than you? Well, I mean, John Herrity used to say, he goes, you know, if you'd have been if you'd been born in in, in yeah. you know in, in France, in Italy, or in in Belgium, whatever, you'd have been a pro straight away. You yeah, know, of course, and, and you would have gotten some good teams. But thank God it's changed, you know, and we've gained the respect uh, of team managers and teams that we, we we can get riders in in those teams now. And the, and the, they're doing a similar job, if not better job than the the lackluster pros of, of years gone by. So, I think you know, Jake, that, that, so that's that's good, really. Jake Stewart said there was a golden a golden generation recently. Ethan Hater, 
yeah. Jake Stewart, uh, Walls, uh, you know, Pidcock, uh, who's that lad at Bar in Victorious? Wright. Um, so Fred, uh, Fred Wright, yeah. But, the, but there's these, just so but many. These, but these guys, you know, when you walk, cause they've come through the track system as well. And yeah, they, they, they may not be like wanting to, to be kind of Olympic champion on the track. A couple will do, and, and, and through various guys, maybe TP or Omnium or Madison or whatever. You know, but they've used that. They've learned, and you can see their desire and drive, and their their you know want to train, want to be better, and not give up. You know that's that's, and you know so, I, I think that just speaks volumes. That those are the guys that we we have now got a way into pro teams, and these guys are just continuing that you know golden era. You know because, uh, and long may it be a golden era because. Like I say, there's, there was probably a time when, because you were born in a certain European country and you were a bike rider, you'd get into these teams. Mm. And you probably, you, you know, I'm not, not labelling everyone, but there's probably a couple of lazy pros there that, that got good contracts mm. because of that against, you know, someone from the UK who's probably better that, that, that could have, you know, done a bit more. But I suppose it's like anything. It's evolved, you know, borders have got, you know, have come down, the, the world's smaller, technology has helped that because... Everything's accessible. Time space compression theory by David Harvey. What you just said then brought me back to my human geography degree. Right. The borders have closed and the world's got smaller. Knew I'd use something for my degree. <laughs> Get in. <laughs> Time space compression theory. The world's getting smaller. You can send money straight away. The world is smaller. It's true. It is. Well, I mean, you know, if 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 you've got a result, you know, it could be a small race. Now, the team manager, like you were saying beforehand, you know. There's, there's that many various like websites now you can you can pick up a rider's results like that like a, a, yep. a, a, the touch of a button and they know what they know what they're doing know the birth date you know how long they've been doing it for what the way exactly all the vital stats and you go right okay this kid's not just a flash and pan it's not just a one-off result they've got like a you can see like a trend so straight away where you know in the past without that you know a one-off result it doesn't mean anything you had to back it up and to back it up you had to like cut your ass off to, to Europe and, and, and live like a you know live in squalor for you know however many months and, and, and riders did that through the 70s through the 80s beforehand you know I, I was like mid 90s I only did a year but, but only because I, I got offered a pro contract over here and I, I could see a way of, of, of doing that and, and seeing if I could I was promised a little bit more that we were going to get into more European races and it, as it turned out we didn't but it it was the start of my career as, as, you know, I suppose getting paid to do yep. something I loved. And through through hook or by crook, through twists of fate, it turned out to be a, a successful and a, a pretty long career that was uh, fortuitous, really. It's really great to hear that. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Best rider you've ever raced against? Who you've just gone, wow, fuck. Like, you've, you know, you've just gone, Jesus Christ, this guy's like lethal. God, it, <laughs> they're tough questions because, like, they were talking 10 years ago now when I last raced, you know. Or someone who you admired the most, apart from Paul Curran. Well, I was going to say Brad, but you, you admired the most. But, you know. Now, Brad, you, like, um, I admire Brad. When he first turn, turned up on the scene, and we, we were, and that was the, the first pro team I rode for, uh, Team Bright. So that was 98. And he was this young junior kid on our first training camp in... in uh, I was going to say New York, but we're in um, just outside of Benidorm. 
you know, stayed in his room. He knew everything. You know, he, he knows this. You know, you could tell like the name, the make of shoe that every pro rider had and or what they'd had in their career. He knew all the stats. He was, he he loved the sport. And he was that, you know, he was that guy that could turn his hand to anything. Right. Bit like you in a way. Yeah. He was more talented, better rider, definitely. You know, whatever he wanted to do, he could do it. Not, you, you know, you, you can't just turn around and go, oh, tomorrow I'm going to be a TP rider, tomorrow I'm going to be a TT rider, tomorrow I'm going to be Tour de a, France rider. a Grand Tour yeah. winner. You know, it took, took time, time yeah. and it took effort and it took sacrifice. Uh, and but, he did it. He did it. So, you know, for, for me, someone who can transcend all those different disciplines of cycling has got to be one of the greatest you know, I raced with him. I raced alongside him as a teammate and against him. So, yeah, I think Brad. What's he like as a guy, as a person? He's <laughs> a proper piss taker. Because you're both northern, you're both, yeah, you're both northern lads, aren't you? You know, because I only see Bradley Wiggins from, he seems, he seems like an outrageous character now. Yeah. He, you know, but I'm sure he's not. I'm sure he's just, it's Brad, it's, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, I suppose when I started, when I, I, I kind of went over to coaching, uh, and we had GB squads over in, in Mallorca and, and we were like in the same hotels as Sky and Brad was obviously still racing. Uh, and he was just coming up to, you know, that was 2010, 11, getting towards 2012 when he's, you know, ultimately going to win the Tour de France. He was very, he seemed fairly quiet. There was that seriousness about him. But I suppose we were on training camp and he was, he was doing his bloody job, really. Yeah. Um, that's the bait. that's the way you want him to be if you were his coach, though, Chris. I, I suppose. I, I mean, I wasn't his coach, but I was. I was. I was watching. I was. You know. I, you know. I was watching other coaches from Team Sky. What are they doing? How are they operating with their riders, etc. Because I was a new coach. I was trying to learn things. But it's um, all marginal gains, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> marginal gains. Everything's marginal gains, though, isn't Best it? Let's not you go know, there. Everything's marginal gains. Um, yeah, what a cliche. It's a good cliche, and it's uh, it's a good thing. Sorry, to do, I, 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 promised we, we, I <laughs> promised we wouldn't go down the street. Today's episode is sponsored by Allowlist, a cybersecurity company, and Lee has actually kindly come over today to tell us a little bit about it. Lee, tell us about your company. I'll do. That's how I start every conversation. <laughs> you want to pick up the phone. Um, back to the Yorkshire roots. Uh, yeah, so I'm one of the founders and the CEO of Allowlist. We pride ourselves on being the one-stop shop for cybersecurity, information security, data protection, and IT. Okay. You know, we work with companies of all sizes from, you know, yours truly, Yorkshire Grit, helping you uh, trying to sort your website out. Yep, yep. Finding you the right guys for that. We work with um, the Struggle Events guys. Yep. Um, you know, we, we, we help them out with some of their security stuff through to, you know, PLCs and banks and, um, you know, football clubs and everything in between. We help them from, as I said, websites to security testing to compliance, um, IT issues and mm -hmm. um, kind of everything around that ballpark area. Our Yorkshire ethics come into it. Okay. You know, people have deep pockets but short arms. Right. <laughs> <up north. laughs> so, so if there's anyone listening who wants to set up a website, if they want to... Um... Yeah, if they want to set up a website, um, you know, we can help them find a good provider if they want to do some security testing, if they want to look at doing backups of, you know, company data, or if they've got things around GDPR, mm -hmm. which is the things a few people may know of. Um, you know, yeah, we, we can help you out. We don't charge for our time. We spend our time looking at the market and making sure you make the best investment and you they make the right choices, okay. uh, essentially, for them. That's great to know. And there'll be a link... Uh, on the Instagram page today where you can find Lee's company on there and uh, he's got a website what's the website? Uh, uh, allowlist.io yeah. 
io io yeah okay great stuff uh, and that's the best way that they can get in contact yeah yeah go, go go via the website you can reach out there's my beautiful face there on the side as well with a <laughs> phone number to reach me and my um, beautiful yorkshire accent so yeah get in touch fantastic lee thank you very much for sponsoring this episode he's going to be sponsoring another one as well in the future so if there are any people out there who do need help uh, with this cyber security uh give lee a ring or give him an email thank you very much cheers guys have a good day this is the Yorkshire Grit Podcast. So my, my, my wife's, um, she's a biomechanist for, for, for GB Cycling. And at the time when, um, <clears throat> when they were going to Rio, she was a performance analyst. And so she was doing all this work with CAV around the Omnium and, and making sure that, you know, that they were getting the marginal gains, making sure that the, the, the places that could make the most gain were the ones he could focus on. And, uh, you know, at the time, Cav was really trying to get that Olympic medal, and that that again that that shows what what a character that is. You know, won all these races, but there's something missing, and he was bloody determined he was going to get that medal. But anyway, so he was there along with Brad and Owen and, and Berkey, and you know, and they were all trying out for TP at the same time because TP, you know, there was I suppose because you know it's it, it's not a banker's medal, but we were at such a the GB were at such a level where you know, a, a shiny gong round your neck was was almost inevitable. But the Cav and Brad taking a piss out of each other all the time, and you know some of the the, the videos we saw and, and things like that, it was just hilarious. There was one. Do you, do you think it's got more serious now? No, I don't. I, um, no, I don't think so. I, I think there's yeah. I suppose you could put you could label things that that make it serious. You know, because everything's to power. You know, everything everything's got a label. You know, a lot of feels gone, just training on feels disappeared a little bit. You know, everyone's checking, oh, this segment, everyone's checking this, that, mm. and the other. So uh, it's serious in that sense. But as I said to I said to Paul a lot, uh, quite a few years ago, he, was, he, he wasn't ahead of his time. He, you could put labels on what training he was doing, you know. Oh, we're going to do some, you know, spiked intervals. We're going to do some threshold. We're going to do some torque efforts. Yeah, you could do all this. Just but, didn't have the names on it. But just didn't have the names on it at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, you start putting names and you go, oh, yeah, we, we do that. And we still do that now. The, the train's never changed. We just put, we've just put a name to it. And then we can identify and go, oh, yeah, let's put that. So when you're planning six weeks in advance, you go, oh, we're going to do like low, uh, low cadence torque efforts. And we're going to do this many reps, this many sets, blah, de, blah. But you just did that. So, you know, that, that's how it's changed that sense. So I suppose it's serious in that sense because everything's planned out. But the people that are riding the bikes are still the same people. And off the bike, when they want to relax, you know, they're, they're, having, a good, they're having a good time. You know, they're having banter and uh, I suppose having a good time. But they're also, you know, they're having a nervous time at the same, you know, alongside yeah. that as well. You know, big competitions. It, we're all human beings. The feeling that how, the ex, how that comes out will be different with different people. But... Yeah, no, these these guys were having having good having good fun, and uh, someone who's been in this studio as well as you is, is Charlie Tamfield. Yeah, again, creating. He's incredibly talented, powerful as fuck. And he's there's something I did want to speak to you about. He spoke a lot about body dysmorphia, and he spoke a lot about um, he had a bad patch in his life where he his, his eating got bad, yeah. and his brother had to help him get back out on the road and. I just had a message off on Instagram then about someone else saying about um, thanks for making people aware about this whole thing. And since I've started doing this podcast, it's without shadow the biggest thing that's happened. It's affected nearly every cyclist I've spoke to, bar one. Yeah. 
and that's just the people I've actually spoke to in here. The amount of messages I've had of people saying, yep, struggled all my life, yep, struggled all my life. How were you with, with diet and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at you now, you look exactly the same as when you raced. Um, <laughs> did eating and did, I say dieting, but yeah, you do have to diet to be a cyclist, it's as simple as that. Did it come easy to you or did you have any struggles along the way? No, I struggled. I think struggled because it, for, for one sense, it was, it was a bit like training, you had to work at it. Of course you did. It's, um, I, I say it's just the same as bodybuilders. Bodybuilders have to work at the gym. Yeah. And then 50%, if not more, is their diet. Yeah. And I see cycling. I, I see cycling is no different. It's a power to weight sport. So dieting and, uh, you know, weight loss, it's all relevant, but it's the, in the context that it, it's either prescribed in or how it's received. And I think there's, it's almost a taboo subject or it's coming out, it's, it's almost coming out of the closet of taboo subject because people are doing, are trying to achieve like, silly weights by doing the wrong things and you know the information's there but it it was never kind of given out uh you just expected to do it and if without any knowledge or without any guidance you do the wrong things then it's very very dangerous physiologically psychologically causes damage and, and, and long long after your career you hear horror stories of you, you do people you do. in italy and um, you know um, six hour rides fasted and sleeping tablets and you know all that bullshit yeah, I mean, to me personally, sorry to interject, something I'm quite passionate about. If I was a coach in your position, your weight is your weight. You'll find it in the sand. It will just, if you just train and if you just eat right, you will be what you will be. Yeah. There's no kind of harm in that. You might need to sharpen up the bolts a tiny little bit. But what's wrong with just being who you were born to be and just just see where that... But then that's absolute bullshit because Bradley Wickens was never on the Todd Offensive. <laughs> exactly. So, so, just, he, um, so, you know, I, and I, again, this is, where it, this is where it becomes dangerous. So you hear stories. So I, you know, I hear a story that, that Brad would do a fasted ride and the only thing he'd have is like a couple of jelly babies in his back pocket. It's probably true, but... but just just to get him home in case he had a, ba a, had a bad turn, you know, and get him home. But he'd have his phone to... to, to to phone his missus up to come and pick him up because he couldn't, you know, pedal another stroke. In one sense, that's the extremes of, of doing similar to training. But what you don't hear is what else he's doing to make sure that that's safe to do, mm -hmm. you know. And it's it's for a short period of time. It's not his whole career. It's a short period of time to make sure he's in yep. tip, comp, tip top condition alongside his training to make sure he's, you know. Hit, it's a bit like a hit, boxer. Hitting the, a, hitting the, the tour, you know. The two days before they have to do a night there. Yeah, body, a heat bath or something. Body, body weight's not going to just stay level. It's got a fl it's fluctuating alongside your training. You can't stay at top form for, you know, your career or a year or a season. And, and neither can, can your body weight or body mass, you know, or power to weight. You know, it's, it's got to fluctuate. But it's got to be done safely. So yeah, um, like when when I when I grew up, and you know, born in the seventies, grew up through the eighties, and there was something on the radio the oh, a few months ago, like your, your dinners that you had. Monday was one thing, Tuesday was another thing, Wednesday was another thing, Thursday, Saturday was always like something like chips and sausages and egg and and whatever. And I'd go and race on that the next day because that's what the mm. family had. It wasn't any different. I wasn't allowed to have anything different, and I didn't know any different. But then you, you you gain knowledge and you know what you should be eating before races, etc. And and obviously you get better because of it because you're fueled correctly. So it, that I mean that's quite a, I suppose it's a funny anecdote in one way. When I went to France, I don't think it makes any difference what you eat before a race. I, I, uh, it, 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 I've it, eaten some absolute, you know, 
bag- I it's, remember it's what your normal diet is that makes a difference. Yeah. What you, you continually kind of put put as long as you've got enough calories, put, you're, you're going to do system, all right. Putting through your system, um, but how it's accessed, um, where it deposits, etc. You know, there is the research behind it, but there's also the knowledge, and you need that not just blindly going, oh, you know, I'm just going to lose weight. And that's what a lot of people are doing, a lot of athletes are doing, not just in cycling, across the board. Like when I first went to France, you know, never met the DS before, never met him in my life, walked into this uh, underground school where the, you know, it was an amateur team where the bikes are hung up. It was RMO service to course. First thing he did was grab hold of my ass. Oh, God. And that's it, like, oh, losing a bit of weight. So uh, You never see me race, mate. <laughs> yeah. And, I'll show know, you need to lose weight. And and I got worse and worse as the year went on because I was trying to get lighter and lighter. And I was at the foot of the Alps. So every race was a was a mountainous race, pretty much. Bar like the first couple yeah. down in the south of France. You come around and see my circuits, son. We'll see yeah. you we'll see you <laughs> fucking last then. Oh yeah, yeah. So <laughs> f- first race in France was third. Second race I won. You know, and that's in, in down in the south of France where I was just doing my own thing off the back of my own training. Yeah. Start trying to lose weight, no milk. We were eating all brown with water for breakfast. We were like, we would come back in from training and go to bed. So we'd skip a meal and have dinner. We'd walk into walk into the center of this, we were living in Animas. And I say we, it was me and Mike Barry. So I shared a, shared a house with Mike Barry. Yeah. Hit her and uh, yeah, dubious character it turns out. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. that wasn't every day. But it, it got to be the, the thing, you know. We, do, do you think, sorry, because this could be a podcast in itself, and there's people who are listening now who want to hear this from us. They just do. If that was at school and that was the PE teacher, that just wouldn't be fucking allowed. That'd be like, you'd get the parents ringing. What the would, hell are you doing to my son? Yeah, you would now, What do you yeah. mean skipping, going, you're mad. But it's elite sport. I get it. You know, Conor McGregor, he's going to be doing similar things to... And I've heard he does similar things to get ripped up. And there's going to be um, marathon runners who are going to do similar weird shit. doesn't make it right. To me, it's, it seems to be ingrained in cycling at the moment that it, there is a small proportion of people, and that doesn't make it right, who it does affect. And it does, up, and it does fuck with their heads, and it does fuck with their lives, and it does mean that they stop cycling. Because someone in a position of power who isn't a doctor, who yeah. isn't a professional coach like yourself, has said to them, mm, you know, I remember going on a training camp and everyone at the table would just make fun of me on a night. Would They would just make fun of me. If I went up for a dessert, they would make fun of me. And when I look back at it now, it didn't bother me then. I was just hungry and I was fat and I was, you know, give a fuck. But I look back at it now and it's kind of like skinniest wins I think that's a perception, but it, it, it but it's skinniest it, it, wins. It's not though that, that, and that's the thing. It, you know, by 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 a DS grabbing all of your ass and going you're too fat, doesn't make you a winner because that just instills you think the skinnier I am, the better I'm going to be, and it, that's that's it, it. It's it's wrong because it's just, kn- it's just wrong. I know it's power to weight, but I lost. I think I got down the to thing, eighty thing- kilos once, and I had one vein. Had a vein, Chris. Had <laughs> a vein. Where it was. <laughs> <laughs> I had a vein, and I remember I got around Chorley Grand Prix, which is quite hilly. It's hilly, and I got around it, and I got around all prems that year. Didn't win a race. I was weak as piss. I, I generally, hand on heart, I was weak as piss. I used to be able to do this thing where you can just bang it in the eleven room, and you can just dart across fucking gaps, and you just feel like, yeah, 
I always believed the heavier I was, I generally, hand on heart, the better I went. Well, the thing is that 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 that, that is, you know, and and uh, you know. So all this, I'm not a, power I'm to not, weight. I do get I'm all not this a physician. Power to, I'm not a doctor. No, I'm not yeah. me, me, uh, not a scientist. But you know, you you literally losing muscle mass. You literally lose muscle. You you starve your body. You don't do it correctly. You you just losing muscle and you're losing function. You're losing the you know you losing health. So it doesn't make you a winner, you know. And power to weight is not about just going. I'm the skinniest. That's not power to weight. So you know you can. It's it's about being careful, being being diligent with your diet what around I, certain races. If there was some, because you know a large portion of people listen to this are male, they're young. You know you obviously got your head screwed on. And you, you know, you're more nuanced. See me with a long word. What advice would you give to some lads who are starting out now? You know, you know, if you had to grab them by the shoulders, you know, what would you say? It's moderation, isn't it? You know, you've got to enjoy it to start with. You normally do, but you've got to carry that enjoyment on because as soon as it doesn't become enjoyable, then it disappears, and 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 that's when the problems start occurring. And I'm not saying that you know when you're training hard, it's it's enjoyable. You know, you're not you're knackered and you come back. No, but it's go, the feeling when you get home. You, exactly, the, yeah, the yeah. enjoyment's there. You know, yeah, of course, you've, you've yeah. got you've got that, haven't you? You know, any, it's any, sacrifice. Anyone who does sport to a certain level gets that. Anyone who, who does sport full stopping and, and, and gets that, you know, that that rush is is kind of has got it. But it's be careful. You know, we were saying about kind of uh, communication, and and that's dangerous. You know. There's, there's a danger in not having any because you go, well, I don't know. So when someone turns around and says, you've got to lose weight, you just go, okay, I've got no information, nothing to hand. I'm just going to stop eating. Well, that's dangerous anyway. But equally, there's so much rubbish that's getting put out on, on social media. Yeah. That again, that you, you, you People just look amazing all the time. Yeah, yeah, you look at that and you go, oh, I'll do that. Yeah. And but they've got no context to what it... What, what that person's going through. Yeah, what it what it relates to, what, what they're doing, where in their kind of, say, training phase they are, where in their, say, diet phase they are, what support they're getting around that, you know, who's looking after them. Just focus on yourself and what you can... So, do. yeah. Um, it's hard, though. It's hard because you always compare. Because if you didn't compare, we wouldn't have standards. If, if you're going to be a sports person, and I'm not, not making it so kind of, not dumbing it down, but if you're going to be a sports person, you're not going down to the sweetie shop and, and stocking up on chocolates, are you? you know, nope. You're trying to eat correctly. Yep. There's a wealth of knowledge. There's good books out there. There's, there's, good, there's good stuff. There's good papers, you know, you by internet, you know, by the internet, you know. Um, there's all that kind of stuff to, to go and read and research. So, so you've just got to be sensible. But as soon as someone starts saying, you, you know, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight, it's like, oh, yep. back off. You or know. if you're in the wrong environment where people just, are just poking start. fun and people are, yeah. I would just urge people to kind of have that, just go with your gut. And, you know, if you feel like it's going to become a problem and you feel like it's becoming a problem, like so many people we spoke to, so many people have spoke to. If you're, if you're getting started in sport and probably at, at any sport, as you're coming up through the ranks, you'd be getting successful. If you're, if you're kind of almost made for that sport and you, you're training hard and, and you're passionate about it you'll start getting results obviously not everyone can get results at something they want to turn the hand to that's, just let all that take care of itself yeah, yeah and and, yeah. and that's what i believe and, yeah. and then when you get better and then when you start getting looked after that's when you start fine-tuning fine-tuning yeah but, um, I, I think that's the best advice but, just win but, eat but, be, but before then no you know these like 15 16 year olds as, as they're coming through and maturing and, and uh physically maturing through sport and 18 19 years old you've been sensible 
but I, I'd be very wary of anything that I'd just kind of read on 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 on, on like you know tweets T- or TikTok or <laughs> yeah anything like that. It just looks because everything's just false, isn't it? You know, and even you know social media pictures of people. You know, it's been pulled, it's been stretched, it's been airbrushed, it's been tampered with. It just it's it just doesn't look right. Um, so you know, you just got to be very careful. I think I, I, th- I think it's really good advice, Chris, and I think it's good that you. You know, you're in a position of power and influence, and it's good to know that you've you've got a real sorry to sound um, patronising here, but you've obviously got your head on your shoulders and you've lived and you've seen, so you're someone who is well balanced. Really, you understand that, yeah. You I do think, have to be. I suppose where I'm, where I'm at with uh, with the riders I coach, they're coming through the system, they're not quite there yet, so we're we're looking for how to make. Um, advances in, in training, how to, you know, to, to um, fine-tune training, to to make that better, to to look at everything, how you, you kind of conduct yourself as an athlete, what you kind of, how you train, how you recover. The nutrition side of things is, is we have nutritionists within within BC, um, and the, the, the first and foremost advice is sensible, and make sure you fuel in the system. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's not about just slimming down, trimming down. You know, it, it it's never about that. We're, we're identifying athletes that can that can move on. Mm-hmm. How can you do that if you're only half? If you're only filling your tank, especially at a young age, you're going to not grow. Remember when you used to try and join a gym when you were a kid, and they'd say, "How old are you?" You had to be a certain age. If you started doing <laughs> yeah. weights, you wouldn't grow. Yeah, yeah. It's the same as it's, it's the same. If you're going to fuck your body, you ain't going to grow. So you might as well. But it's. Um, I mean, you know, don't don't get me wrong. Whatever race it would be, you know, if you if, if a rider asked me, you know, what do you think I need for this race? What nutrition? You know, what should I have in my back pocket? What should I have in my bid-ons? If we're on the road, you know, I'd be able to say. If someone asked me about, uh, you know, do you think I need to like increase my power to weight? I wouldn't advise that. I'd go through a nutritionist. Yeah, and I'd seek their advice first. You know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. What I works wouldn't, for I wouldn't, you? Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. touch it because how do I know how that that person? You know, what's what's their um, metabolism like? You know, it wouldn't be something that I'd be comfortable doing. Because a plate of pasta a night before a race might work for you, but a plate of pasta, you know, I never did that sort of shit. It doesn't work for. Yeah, you know, we're wrapping up now, Chris. But it's you talked about the end of your career, twenty ten, and how you teed up working for GB and stuff. Was that a smooth transition for you? Because you said it was easy. It was easy because I planned it in that sense, and and I do like a good plan. Um, you have to, you know. Um, Sound um, like Roy Keane. <laughs> I reckon you've got a bit of Roy Keane about if, you. If, if, if I've got, especially <laughs> when, with my cycling crew, my my kind of social planning for social life is 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 terrible. But in terms of my job and and, and sport, it was it was always like it was always a, a good plan, really. Uh, and I had to because I, I was doing university. Mum and dad wouldn't let me like just be a full time bike rider yep. to go to uni. Just in case, you know, that, that generation of just in case you don't make it, you've got to have something to fall back on. Yeah. But that worked. So, like I said, there was always like, um, there was there was a reason why something didn't happen, but it, it had a better effect later on in life. Mm-hmm. So I went to university and it ended up being like, it ended up serving me well because when I retired, uh, you know, I had a, an honours degree in sports science that I could, like, I could use and I mm-hmm. could apply into my coaching. And I suppose everyone who's got a degree knows how much actually do you actually 
take back from you that you've learned in your normally degree. not much but, <laughs> yeah. yeah and put into your put into your, your work life or whatever um in saying that i did have a quote today <laughs> <laughs> well yeah exactly so but there is things you dip into and it, it, it gives you that kind of uh that that thirst and appetite to, to learn and, and research and stuff so it was that and uh I suppose that kept me away from being abroad too much. So that's why I was more, I suppose, racing in the UK and flitting between track and road, track and road. And it wasn't until, I suppose, Atlanta um, in 96, I said, oh, I'm going to try it on the road. Ended mm-hmm. up going to France, came back, ended up riding in, in the UK. And then I got I got told in, in 99 that, you know, you're not good enough. The team manager of, of McCartney's at the time said, you know, sat me down in the middle of Tour of, Tour of Canada, you're not good enough. And uh, so I didn't get a contract for the year after. And it was current again. He goes, I was, I was ready to stop. I got like application forms for the police. I thought, oh, you know, I might be a, might be a copper or whatever. Something to do, you know, out and about. And it was short. He says to me, he goes, have you got any savings? Said, yeah, I've got a bit. And he goes, don't give in. Just give it six months. And that was like start of 2000. And, I was, and again, I was ruthless. I went every race I went, I went to win. But I had to win because I needed the bloody money. Amazing. And yeah. I needed the three hundred quid from Hard Riders first place to, to you know to pay the to pay the mortgage you know and, you know otherwise mm. it would have to stop and again so because I'd done the track before I went I went over to Manchester and I said oh any chance I could try out for the uh, the national team again well you got to do your standards you know you got to do these times where's the rest of the squad over there in Australia training like for mm. for for um, Sydney Games. So I ended up like renting a house off Pete Jakes, out the back of the man- uh, out the back of the track. This little um, terraced house, rough as anything. You know, you'd have like a chair up against the dog <laughs> when you went to bed, keeping all your bikes. And I trained over there just by myself, got the times, and and then got back into the squad, uh, and ended up going to Sydney. So that that took that off, and by being part of that, I got back into Europe and I was racing with the GB team. I ended up winning bloody loads of races, like mm-hmm. Circuit de Means, yeah, um RAS twice. Yeah, the, the RAS and stuff. So I got a, I got a, a good couple of uh, pro offers, but it was Heiko uh, Salzwedel. He said to me, he goes, do you want to just be a, a domestique and ride for someone else? Or do you want to try and win some world titles? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try and win some world titles. I wanted to, to you know. Yep. And, and that's what kept me kind of on the track and the road kind of thing. So... You know, that's how it kind of went. That's that's that was kind of my career in, in a nutshell, really. But there's things that I did along the way that I went back to and I could pick up. And I think that that's probably that's always a key message with like some of the riders that come through. You know, I, I don't want to be a track rider. I want to be a road rider. I don't want to be a road rider. I want to be a track rider. Mm. It's like just think of the the skills that you're going to get. Just think of the opportunities and where you're going to use these as you, as you move forward. You know, that that was that was something that's always kind of. Uh, it's resonated, re- resonated yeah. with me, and um, it, it's still something that I'd, I'd try and pass on. And I got, I got that from, I got that from Charlotte. I got that from a few people. You know, it's just the craft of cycling. You, you're asked to do a lot of things in cycling, aren't you? You know, yeah. if you're an endurance, if you're an endurance cyclist, you're asked to cover a lot of bases. If you want to win, win a sprint, you got to get your ass over that bloody mountain. So you want to need to, you need to know how to suffer on a mountain. And you're not going to do that by riding around in, in the Yorkshire Dales. You're going to have to go and ride some big, big climbs. So. You know, and, and these sprinters, you, you, like the likes of Cav, you think, wow, you know, you've you've, you've put yourself through that to win a sprint. It yeah. does, just doesn't just him. happen. I love him. You know, so the, the, those those bits you've got to learn. It's not as I'm a sprinter. I can't. I don't want to do the climb because I can't do this. 
you're going to need it. You're going to need all those kind of things. You're not just, and this is going to sound really bad, like, you know, you're not just a, a, an athletic sprinter and that's all you do. You do a, a wide variety of things. You know, you, you, you cover the basis of a lot of things to yeah. uh, in, a, in a cycling career. Chris, it's been, um, this is, you know, it's been everything I hope for this podcast. I think it's uh, from someone who, you know, I stalked, idolised. I really, really, really wish we could have trained together. I think we would have got on in a weird way. I think I'd have done your fucking head in. <laughs> <laughs> but I would love to have maybe got, I would love to have got a compliment from you. A bit like my dad. I kind of hold you in that regard where I would love, if you'd have gone to me, but yeah, you, you know, you're stronger. I think that would have made my day. Um, I was always that type of rider. I always needed someone to tell me, you know, you know, you're really good. And I think anyone who is coached by you is in really good hands. And I think you're a bit of an unsung hero. I think I don't think you get the credit you deserve. I think you're very, yeah, I think you just fly, you fly very under the radar, Chris. And it's a shame um, because you have got your head screwed on. You are a perfectionist. Yeah, you might be a grumpy bastard, but, you know, who isn't a grumpy bastard? Do you know what I mean? You know, it's been a real pleasure to kind of hear you talk today. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I am, a, you know, and... Uh <laughs> I think I wear my I wear my kind of my emotions on my face. It's like one of those faces that you know if you're in, not in a bad mood, but if you're feeling it, but often not like you've got these like got like furrowed brow. It's because I'm deep in thought. I'm trying to work something <laughs> out, and I'm trying to make. I'm planning. I'm always planning. Of, there's there's always something going on in my head. That What's for to dinner plan. tonight? Am I gonna have chip? <laughs> yeah, but that I get I get into that. I go oh, if I'm gonna have this, I go well that'll that'll require this this and this, and I need to do this this and this, and I need to get that from there. And this, and I'm, I'm the same. That's going on in my head. And I'm like, God, will you? And 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 Deb, someone's trying to talk Deb's to you. My wife, she literally goes. She comes up to me and she goes, "Can you turn the switch off now?" And she like flicks the side of my head because she thinks I've got a switch that you know. I wish I did because it's just constantly. Well, and um, it's, it's tiring, isn't it? I wrote that down in my journal today. I wish, <laughs> I wish my mind would turn off sometimes. But it's great to have you here, and I really hope that um, you know our paths cross again somehow. Probably not on a bike. It's been so interesting hearing everything about you. Uh, because you achieve so much in cycling and it's so often not celebrated, you know. But you are the Roy Keane of cycling. If you were on a punditry thing, you would be Roy Keane. You'd be like, nah, not good enough. <laughs> uh, need to sort it out. But look, Chris, thank you so much for coming. Drive safely over the M62 and um, just all the best with all your coach riders. Cheers, thanks very much. Anytime, anytime. The Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Subscribe now on iTunes and Spotify.